Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, Tyler Crawley. And, well, on Monday's podcast, we started with the jobs report. So let's start Tuesday's pod with the job openings report that came out on Monday. And not surprisingly, another all-time high. That's right. Job openings reached an all-time high on the last business day of June. That, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, job openings and labor turnover summary. That's not as ridiculous as the uh, Case Schiller name, but that's one of the more longer ones. Job openings increased 590,000, so 590,000 more jobs, at least potential jobs, a series high of 10 Point one million on the last business day of June, which caused the job openings rate to rise to 6.5%. Now, some good news there. The South leads the way with 3.8 million job openings, followed by the West, the Midwest, and the Northeast, which, by the way, is kind of the pattern for every major category. South at the top, the Northeast at the bottom. Now, looking at certain professions, professional and business services saw the biggest increase of job openings at 227,000, followed by retail trade and accommodation and food services, which makes sense because if anyone's gone to a restaurant, you will know about the labor shortage, so it makes sense that's where a lot of job openings are. Now, one of the other major categories, probably just as important, is, of course, hires. This is the people who were hired in the month of June. That was up 697,000 to 6.7 million with the biggest increase in retail trade, followed by state and local government and durable goods manufacturing. Now, one of the other big categories is, of course, separations, which really gives you an idea. This is people quitting their job. So this kind of gives you an idea of where the employer employee balances. And not surprisingly, that was up 254,000 in June to 5.6 million with the biggest increase in professional and business services, followed by durable goods manufacturing and state and local government. So not all that surprising that the places where you're seeing the most hires is also where you're seeing people quit and also kind of similar as to where you're seeing Uh, job openings as well. There's some kind of mix. They're all kind of connected in a way. But like I said, the South continues to lead the way in both categories. They led with hires up 2.6 million in June, followed by the Midwest, the West and the Northeast. The Northeast didn't even crack a million. They were the only ones not to crack a million only at 700 or 978,000. The South, like I said, also led with regards to separations with 2.2 million in June, followed by the West, Midwest, and the North, Northeast, who once again failed to crack a million. So it's kind of fascinating, but there's no doubt that any way you look at it, the South is the place to be. They had the most job openings, the most hires, and the most separations. However, It is really the same story across the country. Almost every business is looking to hire and cannot seem to fill those positions, at least at the rate that they would like. So what is happening now? I know one of the big there's two real kind of main arguments, I would say the Republicans are arguing that it's well, it's because of these generous unemployment benefits that's keeping people on the couch and they're not looking for work. And then on the other side, You have people on the left who are arguing, well, it's people that are still afraid of COVID. And that's why 
they're not going back to work. They're afraid of COVID. And I would say both of those just don't really hold that much water. And the reason I say that is a lot of people, like I said, have blamed the generous unemployment benefits for keeping people on the couches. But there was a report last month that found that the states that cut unemployment benefits did not see a statistically significant increase in job seekers. So maybe there's a lag there. We'll see. But a lot of states cut unemployment benefits and you did not see a lot of people running to fill those positions. Now, that would then say, okay, well, it's got to be people that are fearful of COVID, except just look around. (laughs) I mean, you look what's happening. Lollapalooza. I mean, you got the Obama party up in Martha's Vineyard. I mean, just there. Yes. Are there people who are still concerned about COVID? Absolutely. Delta variant is concerning people. But the idea that that's what's causing this major disruption, I'm not buying it either. Just based on the news and these giant gatherings, people going to these gatherings. And it's all across the board. It's not just like one class of people. I mean, I'm talking across the board. It seems like people are going back to their daily lives. So what's going on? Well, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times. And by the way, the Washington Post also wrote about this. Childcare and the struggle that parents are currently going through. The New York Times wrote, many parents of preschool-aged children face a shortage of childcare openings. One-third of childcare centers never reopened after the pandemic. And research shows that those that are still closed disproportionately serve Asian, Latino, and black families. Those that opened are only operating at 70% capacity on average, and they have struggled to hire qualified teachers, must keep classes small to limit exposure, and they've raised prices to cover new health and cleaning measures. And so we've seen this. I mean, we've seen this in other jobs reports where we're finding that the spouse in a relationship, the one that's most likely to be the uh, caretaker for children, tends to be the one not going back to work. In a lot of cases, that ends up being women. And we have seen, we've seen men return to the workforce, but women are not coming back at anywhere near that rate. And a lot of people have said childcare. That is one of the big factors. So until there is a viable child care option for millions of parents across the country, we could continue to see a lot of job openings that are not going filled, unfortunately. Uh, rate locks. Uh, you know I like rate locks. Why do I like rate locks? Because I think that's a better indicator than, say, you know, mortgage application demand because when people are getting ready to, you know, they're locking in their rates, they're more than likely to move forward. That gives you kind of a better indication of what is happening in the mortgage game. Once a month, we get the Black Knight uh, Originations Market Monitor report. There we go. And we got July's report, and they found an increase from June. Maybe the housing market's not cooling off after all. Uh, Rate locks were up 5.5% from June, thanks to a big jump in refis. And that has now brought the refinance purchase split back to a nice even 50-50. That's for the first time that's happened in five months. So how much or how big of a jump did we see in refis? Well, for rate term locks, they were up 24%. And for cash out refis, 20%. In fact, purchase volume actually declined 7%. Why? Inventory levels. People can't find houses. They want to lock but they're not going to lock till they can find a house. And so purchases actually declined. Refis jumped up. Now we got a perfect 
50 50 split. Uh, Scott Happ, Black Knight Secondary Marketing Technologies president, said that the rates dropping below 3% on certain loan products were definitely the catalyst for this surge, saying in a statement, quote, the mid month surge was pronounced but short lived, suggesting that crossing the 3% threshold was what borrowers were waiting for before acting. And when rates ticked back above that psychological line, they held back on the sidelines once again. Now, it's important to note that with everyone concerned about another housing bubble and 2008 happening all over again, well, I should say people outside of housing, because everybody in housing will tell you that this is not 2008, not even close to it. And here's another great example. The refi boom in July actually saw the average credit score up for the month, which proves that even with this increased activity, we're not seeing a lowering of lending standards. We're not seeing the subprimes. We're not seeing, we're not seeing, I think, I think the average score here was 730, something along those lines, which if you remember last week, we talked about that Federal Reserve household debt report looking at mortgages and the average credit score there was over 760. So, I mean, lending standards are staying strong. At the end of last week, and we talked about this on, yesterday's pod, Taylor Borden at Business Insider argued that housing shortages could last until 2031. Now, there's not a single economist on the planet that believes that interest rates are going to fall over these next few years. And so as more people refinance their homes, especially at rates under 3%, there's a concern that there will be fewer people in the near future who are open to selling their homes knowing their rates could jump significantly if they were to move. And that's one of the big concerns, I think. That's, that is that if you want to talk about there's a housing crisis that we're looking at, that's the housing crisis. As we talked about that Taylor Borden piece of Business Insider mentioned that boomers aren't selling their homes. And so if you're refining and you're getting a sub 3% rate, and then all of a sudden rates are at 4 or 5%, are you likely to buy another home? Especially if home prices have gone up. That's, I think, one of the big concerns. And that's the one thing not a lot of people are talking about. Are we going to see this sort of housing cycle come to a halt? And so that's why building is so important, because we could see people saying, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to sell. And that will have an impact. No doubt about that. All right. Before we run out of time, good news once again, actually for the 23rd week in a row. That's right. Loans in forbearance fell for the 23rd week, hitting a Jordan, baby. 23rd week, total loans and forbearance fell seven basis points from the previous week to 3.4%. The Mortgage Bankers Association now estimates that homeowners in forbearance plans have now fallen to only 1.7 million. What I love about that is that number keeps getting smaller. And then the people who are have positive equity is getting bigger. And so pretty soon we're going to get to a point where there's going to be fewer people in forbearance programs than have negative equity. And so what that's going to tell you is that there's, I mean, we already know there's not going to be a foreclosure crisis, but that will just make it that much more apparent. Uh, It should also be noted, Mike Frantantoni, MBA's senior vice president and chief economist said the situation is actually even better than these numbers show on their face. He says that 1.7 million homeowners remain in forbearance, 13% of whom were current on their payments 
As of August 1st, of those who exited forbearance last week, more than 10.5% were current. Forbearance is surely provided both insurance and assurance for many of these homeowners who worried about ongoing hardships. And it is positive to see so many continue to be able to make their payments while in forbearance. No doubt about that. Like I said, it was a pretty positive pod for this Tuesday morning. So real quick before we go, let's take a look at what's happening tomorrow, which really isn't a lot. Uh, We got productivity numbers coming out for Q2. And that's really all we got. And then we got the Cleveland Fed president, Loretta uh, Mester, is going to be speaking. But other than that, not a lot going on. So I don't know what we're going to be talking about on Wednesday morning. We'll see. (laughs) I'm sure I'll find something. I will be able to find something to discuss. But you guys have a great Tuesday. I'll see you back here Wednesday morning. And as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.